Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Our scripture reading this morning is going to come from James 2, verses 14 down through 26. So if you're physically able, we like to stand to our feet in honor of the reading of God's word. And um, for us, this is a very practical way for us to corporately acknowledge that the words that we are about to read are not the words of man, but these are words that have been inspired by God himself. These are words of the Spirit. And so I would hope and pray that you pay attention and receive all that God has to say today through my sermon. And don't tune out once we stop reading the Bible here. But I would say that this is definitely a time to especially be attentive as this is God's word. And we'll declare that together at the end as I say, this is the word of God for the people of God to which we can all respond with joy. Thanks be to God. Let's read God's word together. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. James writes, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Lord, we do thank you genuinely. We say that from a place of sincerity. God, thank you for your word. Thank you, God. Thank you for your guidance. Thank you for your voice. Thank you for your spirit. We need it, Lord. We just sang it. We need you. And that's what we're here to do today, God. The reason why we showed up here on a Sunday morning is not because it's our routine, not because we're, quote, Christian, but we're here, God, because we need you. We need something from you. So we we ask that, that in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that this morning as we're here, as we acknowledge that we are poor in spirit and that we need you, we ask, God, that you would give us what you know we need. Speak to us. And as always, Lord, that's our prayer. Um, May this sermon be more than just Andrew's words in a sermon. Use this time for your glory, your purposes. Get me out of the way, God, so that you can do your work. That's why we're here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, this morning, 
I'd like to preach from the title, The Inseparable Duo of Faith and Works. The Inseparable Duo of Faith and Works. Now, one thing that I love about our church is that we are a multi-generational community. This is something that I really love, something that's really near and dear to my heart, something I always prayed for. I didn't want to start a youth group church. I really felt like God wanted to do a work with Solace that would involve multiple ages and stages so that each stage of life could benefit from the other. Are you with me? And it's been cool to watch God do that, to see discipleship happen because of that. And it's a really sweet thing. Now, sometimes it's a challenging thing. Most of the time, it's when I'm preaching because I will use cultural, pop cultural references that either um, make you laugh and make you smile or make you question, what is he talking about? And I see it. I see when you know what I'm talking about, and I see when it goes over your head, even though you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Drake, right, 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 right. Drake, that guy. Um, so we have our differences there with our different generations come different pop cultures that we're used to, different references. You know, I'm kind of, I like to see myself as somewhat of a middleman there, you know. Um, 30. Next month, I'm going into my 30s. I turn 31 next month. And so I'm kind of on this, I'm kind of like grabbing my 20s. You're like, I don't want to leave. I'm so close to you. But, you know, I'm at this stage where I feel like, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not so young that I don't like know, not know who like the Beatles are. And, uh, you know, I watch Nick at Night on TV growing up. See? Do you see what just happened there? Half the room went, what? <laughs> when does Nick Jonas on at night? I didn't know that that happens, okay? Um, and then there's a part of me, too, that's, you know, being 30. I, man, I had my fair share of Nickelodeon growing up, and so I, I've kind of, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a mediator for the generations here when it comes to pop culture. Now, here's one thing I, I think is true. No matter what cultural generation we grew up in, there's one thing that all of those cultural generations have in common. All of those cultural generations had a squad of iconic duos, inseparable duos. Let's do a little exercise here. I wonder if anybody can get all of these right. I'll say the first name. I'm going to go all over. We're going from 2010. We're going to go back to the 60s, maybe even earlier. Okay? I'm not trying to date anybody in here. I'm just saying that's what we're going to do. All right, so I'll say the first name, and you help me complete the sentence. Bert and Timon and Keenan and come on, all that. Laverne and okay, Zach and there it is. There's the millennials. Lilo and Starsky and good. Mario and. Here's a good one. Ready? Simon and all deep older voices. Half of you went, Theodore, Alvin? <laughs> Simon, like Simon Cowell and Randy Jackson? I don't know. Calvin and good. This is my favorite. Pinky and the brain, brain, brain. Okay. Abbott and good. Okay, here's a hard one now. If you just got Abbott and Costello, this next one might be a little tough. Phineas and, wow. Drake and, Mary-Kate and, ah, two more. Sonny and, 
Beavis and... Just kidding. Just kidding. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. Sorry to make you say that in your head. Um, anybody get all of them? I'm just curious. Anybody nail everyone? Okay, a couple of you. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> now, as we just saw, what makes these iconic duos inseparable, that's what we're talking about here, inseparable duos. And what makes these iconic duos inseparable, as we just saw, is that you can't hear of one without thinking of the other. They are connected. They are linked. They go hand in hand. And that's exactly what we have here in James chapter 2. From James' perspective, we see this inseparable duo For James, it's like he can't hear of one without thinking of the other. It's the inseparable duo of faith and works. Faith, what I believe, my beliefs, my assurance, my certainty about God in this life and works. My actions, my choices, my decisions, my deeds, my activity. For James, these are not two distinct things. They go hand in hand. They are, in a sense, one in the same, this inseparable duo. Now, I think this is important for us to see that. that that's really what James is honing in on, uh, because I think when it comes to faith and works, these tend to be two spiritual characteristics that I feel like we tend to pit against each other. We kind of go, in one corner, you have faith, or you could say maybe Paul. You got Romans over here justified by faith. You have believing God. And then over here you have, in the other corner, at odds with faith, you have works, what you do, what I believe in one corner and what I do in the other. But for James, that's not how he sees faith and works. In fact, it's even verse 22. We read that verse where he talks about how faith was working together with works. Enemies don't work together. (laughs) They work against each other. He's talking about this link, this dependency even, the fact that they Go together like two peas in the pot. In a pod, you have faith and works. Faith and works, you can think of it this way, are friends. They're friends. They're really good friends. It's kind of like when you started dating her. What you learned really quick was you weren't just dating her, but you also got some new friends. Yeah, you're just dating her. Like she's your only girlfriend, but you also have some new friends. Well, faith has friends is what. James is teaching us, and he has this central, almost like this best friend forever friend, like top on his MySpace profile, like number one in his favorites, all right? I can't believe I just referenced MySpace, but (laughs) he has this best friend, this loyal companion that he goes everywhere with. He's never without works. It's important to see that, that they work together, but not only that, not only do they work together, but we need to see this. James seems to assert that they actually can't function apart. They're inseparable. What a contrast from last week. Last week, we talked about something that was incompatible with faith, right? We talked about partiality, this sort of spirit that gives favor or shows favor and gives preference to one kind of a person over another. And what we said last week was that's incompatible with following Jesus. That cannot exist with faith. Now, this week, we have something that it's not that it can't exist with faith, but faith can't exist without it. The complete opposite, something inseparable. And we see that there right away in verse 
14. James describes here someone who says he has faith but does not have works. Like to James, he even tells us later on in verse 20, this is a foolish idea. It's foolish to separate these two things. To James, faith without works, it isn't faith at all. We see the connection there. And really what we want to look at here with this inseparable duo that James gives us is we want to ask the question and see James answer the question of why. Why is it that faith and works go together? Why is it that they can't function apart? Why are works, we'll ask it more specifically this way, why are works, what I do, why is it so necessary and inseparable from what I believe? Okay, let's look at three things that James tells us about this. The first thing we see about this reality of faith needing works is, number one, James teaches us that faith, or works rather, express a fruitful faith. If you want to have a fruitful faith, we're going to need works. Now, where does James say that? He actually says it three times, maybe in a bit of a different way, but three times in this passage we just read, James uses this illustration, this image, this idea about faith without works, and he says that faith without works is dead. That's how he says it. Pretty interesting. Pretty blunt, too. You can say that you have faith. You say you believe in God. You say all the right things. You no church, you know truth, intellectually you acknowledge it, but if what you acknowledge is not manifest in how you act, James would say that the faith that you're claiming to have is not faith. In fact, it is faith, but it's dead faith. Um, I, you could sort of think of it this way. For James, works are the pulse of faith. Like if you're looking to see Am I spiritually alive? Like, how do I check my spiritual pulse? James would say, well, look at your life. Jesus said it this way, you know them by their fruits. A tree that's alive is going to produce fruit. A tree that's dead is not. It's going to wither. Spiritual life inevitably leads to fruit. Jesus... um, he actually used this concept when he was speaking to these seven churches in the book of Revelation. There's this incredible section in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation where, where Jesus is writing to seven literal churches in seven literal locations at a real time. And in writing to these churches, he begins each address to these churches. They're like mini epistles, like short little, little letters he writes them in the book of Revelation through John. And he begins each each almost like analysis by saying this. He says, I know and I see your works. God sees, he's he's aware of, he has a grip on the activity of my life. God knows what kind of faith we have in a way that nobody else does. We We all can get really good at pretending how spiritual we are. We can all be really good at, at, at portraying how faith-filled we are, but from God's perspective, there's one pulse. It's our lives. It's how we're living. It's our works. It's our actions. It's our attitude. That's how Jesus even addresses these churches. There's this one church, the church of Sardis, specifically. And Jesus says to this church, he says, I know your works, and I know that you have a name and a reputation that you're alive, but he says, but you're actually dead. It's amazing how you can have a church, you can have a group of people claiming to follow Jesus, and they have all the right information. They're saying all the right things. They're singing all the right songs. They're 
doing church in all the right ways. But as Jesus looks on, he doesn't see what he's really looking for, which is not a show, which is not religion. It's fruit. By this, my father is glorified, Jesus said, that you bear much fruit. Fruitfulness works. Jesus looks on and he goes, I see your works and you have a reputation of being alive, but your faith is dead. There's no life to it. Now, I want to clarify what, um, what we're talking about here. Um, I, I think we get an idea about this kind of fruitfulness in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 10. This is a great prayer. I love this prayer. What a, what a prayer that we, I think as a church, we really need to wholeheartedly pray this for our church. Like, I don't want to be a community. I don't want this to be like a thing that's just sideways energy. You know what I mean? We're doing a bunch of stuff. We're really busy. You know, you can be busy and unfruitful. You can do church and be unfruitful. You can be in ministry, and you can have a microphone, and you could be preaching, but it's not fruitful. It's not the kind of fruit that God's looking to produce. This great prayer in Colossians that Paul prays. Remember when we studied Colossians? We, we studied this. Paul prays for the church at, at, at uh, the Colossian church. He says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. What a great prayer. God, help us be fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is God's vision for our faith, fruitfulness. Uh, now, I want to emphasize for a second what Paul and what James are not saying. Sometimes it's important in order to understand what someone is saying is to clarify what they're not saying. Um, what James is not talking about here when he says that faith without works is dead is he's not talking about um, a problem with your inability to make God happy with you. Like, and that's what we can read. I mean, I don't know about you, but I read something like this, like fully pleasing him, fruitful in every good work. I hear something like, you know, faith without works is dead. And I don't know about you, but my internal legalist starts rising up like, okay, yeah, no dead faith up in hell. I got, I'm going to work, man. Like, I, you start to kind of get that, okay, right, right, okay, gotta, God, oh, no dead faith. You don't like dead faith. I don't want to be like Sardis. The internal legalist starts to rise up because we just love being a legalist. We do. We love having the glory for being good enough. We love that. We're drawn to that. So we need to emphasize, when James talks about dead faith, he's not talking about something that's also mentioned in Scripture called dead works. Dead works. This is in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, where the writer of Hebrews says that as Christians, we need to be those that aren't just zealous for good works, but we are those who are zealous to repent and to turn away from what the Bible calls dead works. There's a wrong way to do this. There's a wrong way to pursue fruitfulness. There's a wrong way to try to make your faith come alive and be pleasing in the eyes of God. The Bible says the wrong way is called having dead works. Dead works, listen to this, it's anything that I try to contribute to my salvation. Anything. Any ministry, any obedience, any, any like waking up early, any spiritual discipline, it's anything. Those are dead. You know, when's the last time we repented over those things, right? I don't know about you. I find myself repenting a lot over my bad works. I need to spend more time repenting over my dead works. God, yeah, I'm sorry for doing the wrong thing, but sometimes I got to say, God, I'm sorry for doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Repent over dead works. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about dead works. He's talking about, as we read there, good works. Um, Paul really helps us out in Ephesians. And in Ephesians, he kind of lays this out. He helps us understand the futility of dead works, the goodness of God's work, 
and then our own call to good works. It says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's that it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast and puff out their chest and think that they're a little bit better than the person next to them to whom they are united as another sinner in desperate need of Jesus. So it's by grace that we're saved through faith. So important, so important. Um, Paul goes on to say, like, if it's of works, then it's not of grace. You get two options. Either you're earning God's love through your works, the works of the law, or it's his grace. If there's any ounce of your works, instead of just trusting in Christ, it's no longer grace. It's no longer unmerited favor. It's no longer God's goodness and love towards you. It's now you trying to earn that. So that's what he starts with. Good works don't save us, but notice the next verse, and I wish more people would go to verse 10. Like, people got this tattooed. I'm like, you should have had a little more room there and got 10, too. It's a good one, too. In verse 10, he says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see the visual here of fruitful living faith that's not dead but alive? a new humanity created in Christ Jesus. So here's the big idea. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. And what an awesome thing that we get to explore here. We are his workmanship in Jesus. We're made new. It's, it's a work of God. It's the work of his grace. But as I become new in Jesus, I have like these assignments from heaven. I have these good works. I am his workmanship. He's worked in my life. I am his masterpiece. In the Greek, you know, it's poema. I am his work of art. He's done this incredible thing in my life, and people look on at me, and they go, there's something outside of you on your life. Who is that? What is that? It's Jesus. It's Jesus who's done this work in my life. And now that I'm new in him, this is amazing. What an exciting way to live our lives. Mindful of the fact that God has good works prepared for me beforehand. That's the best part. Um, I, I kind of had to repent recently just in my heart and just in my own prayer life. Sometimes I'm bored, if I'm honest. Anybody ever been kind of bored spiritually? Like, can we just be real? Like, come on, no, never. I'm always flat on the mat in my prayer language. Okay, good for you, okay. Let's just be real. And I'm like, at the same time, I'm thrilled. Like, wow, God, like, look what you get. Like, this is amazing what you're doing. But there's a lot of times where I'm like, meh. I just feel that way. Monotony just creeps in. Familiarity breeds contempt, right? And as I read this, the Lord, it's almost like I got a, like a fresh dose of excitement. And it comes from the fact that God actually has things for me to do every day when I wake up. That God's fingerprint and hand is on my life, not because I earned it, but because of Jesus. And now that I'm in Jesus, wow, what, what an exciting way to go about my life, to understand that God has things that he's, that'll, that'll cause you to come alive. And here's what this means. This means, you need to understand this, your life is not random. You're not insignificant. You may feel like you're living and you're in a season of obscurity. We get there. But God knows who you are. God knows where you are. And he knows why you're there. 
And wherever that is for you right now, whatever season you're in, whatever place you're in, however you're serving, maybe it's home, your mom, you're at home with the kids, maybe it's in your nine to five every day, and it's so easy to kind of look beyond the thing because it's boring, and we're kind of like, Lord, bring some excitement to my life. I'll tell you what, sometimes it's not that we need a new thing, it's that we need a new perspective to an old thing. We need to be able to look at what I'm doing, whatever is my career, my ministry, my life, and something starts to happen. Something will happen in your workplace when your job is not your job, but it's a good work prepared beforehand for you to walk in. And you come to work like, this isn't just another day at the job. God's got something for me to do today. That whole perspective changes everything. Excitement starts to well up in our hearts prepared beforehand for me to walk in. God is so good. I mean, sometimes I think about that, and I'm like, why? You know, like, there's so many other things that God could be thinking about and worrying about in this world. And the fact that with all that goes on in this world, that God has a plan for your day. God has a plan for your life. Now, the hardest part here is the next part, which says that we should walk in them, right? It's easy to have a calling. It's hard to answer it. It's easy to go, man, God's got a plan for me. That's great. That's great. But a dream is just a dream until it becomes a reality, because, until it starts to get stepped out. We should walk in him. The reason why God, like, the reason why people prepare dinner is not to go on Instagram, look at my dinner. I'm called. God prepared that for me. I tell everyone about I'm called. It's like, well, are you going to eat it? It's prepared to be experienced, to be walked in. What has God prepared? What's God been putting on your heart? And you need to move beyond, as James would say, you've you got to just do it. You know, the Nike slogan. It's like you, you've been thinking about it. You've been talking about it. But at what point do you start walking in it? Now, this is the hardest part, the biggest challenge, walking in it. Um, being fruitful. Because uh, fruit requires the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 the fruit that God wants to produce in my life, it doesn't happen for me sitting down and like letting God, you know, pixie dusting fruit in my life. Paul says in Galatians 5 that the fruit of the Spirit, it plays out in our lives when we walk in step with the Spirit. So we take steps in good works. The opportunities come. God prepares for and we have this relationship with God. Now, all along, Paul says in Galatians 5, the trouble with walking in the good works that God has for us, and those good works are, are manifold. Everywhere from obedience and saying no to sin, Everywhere from, from a calling and a ministry to meeting a need that comes before you. But Paul says the problem and the issue that we have with walking in those good works, walking in the spirit, bearing fruit, is that we have this war going on between the spirit and our flesh. And the flesh is always contrary to the spirit. That's why Paul said, I got to beat my body. I got to discipline this thing into submission, into obedience to the spirit. That's the call. That's how we Walk in it. It's a step of the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. And I think sometimes what's so hard about this, whatever the, the flesh looks like, there's so many ways this, that this plays out, but the flesh, sometimes it's temptation that causes you from walking in the good work of obedience, but sometimes it's just fleshly reasoning that causes you from walking in what God has called you to do, right? Your own justification of why you're not gonna, of why it's not the Lord, of why you're not ready, of why you're not good enough. Um, or uh, it's not significant, it's not like a big deal. 
which is interesting because when Jesus talks about our works and our deeds, remember Matthew 6, Jesus said, here's how I want you to frame the good works you do. In Matthew 6, he says, don't do them before people. Um, Don't be like, he says, like the hypocrites who go around every time they do something good, they blow a trumpet. What was that? Who who blew that trumpet? I don't know. But did you see what I was doing? Like, you don't, need to, um, you don't need to have, like, a loud worship set before you do your good work for people to see what you're doing. You, you don't need to have this. Att- Jesus says, here's what you need to do. You need to intentionally do those works. And this is how it's going to be most of the time. This is most of the time where we don't walk in it is because maybe we don't trust that it's significant enough because people aren't watching. We're like, oh, it's not that important. But Jesus says, seek that you do your charitable deeds in secret. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Here's the promise. Your father sees you in secret. He sees you. He sees that small step of obedience. And though no one else does, the most important person who could see it does see it. He's going to reward it. Fruitful faith, walking in the spirit. And I just want to kind of close out this point with a quote from Francis Chan, who famously said this about our lives and when it comes to walking in God's plan. Francis Chan said that our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't matter. Our greatest fear should not be that I try to walk and follow after Jesus and step in the thing that he's called me to do and to be obedient, and I tripped and I fell. It's the expression, at least you get the A for effort, you know? The greatest fear that we should have is not that we fail, but that we put all of our energy and effort in things that are not of God. That, that aren't a part of what he's prepared for us. We succeed at things in life that in the end don't really matter. So James is, is laying the foundation there. Faith without works is what? It's dead. It's fruitless. But when faith employs works, when, when faith gets to work, when faith acts in obedience, when faith walks in the spirit, it's alive. Works are the pulse of faith. Secondly, number two, we see that works extend a useful faith. First, they express a fruitful faith, walking in the things that God has prepared for us. But they also extend to others a useful faith. That is the question that James is actually, it's almost like that's the central question he's asking. He asked it there in verse 14. Let's read those again. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? In other words, what is the use? What does it profit? What's the advantage or benefit of someone who says, I have a bunch of faith, but I don't have works? Verse 15 says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. Here's the question for a second time in two verses. What does it profit? What's the advantage? What's the benefit of believing and and declaring that you believe a bunch of things? What benefit does my faith actually bring to others? Without works, James is saying it's, it's, it's a waste of time. It's useless is what he's saying. It's of no advantage. Let's, let's, be, let's be real about this. Um, we just talked about it, but God wants our faith to be useful. Here's the, the biggest idea. God wants to use our lives. It's amazing that he does. I wouldn't want to use me when I, if I was God. I'd be like, do you, I've already got to do it myself. You know? like, That's what's amazing about God. What's amazing about God is that God chooses to intervene and 
and mediate with people. He uses people to accomplish his purposes. And we have to evaluate ourselves and go, God, am I useful to you? We see this in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul says that in a great house, he's speaking there of the church. It's an illustration of the church, like a home. There are not only vessels of gold and silver, you know, your fine china, your nice plates, your Williams and Sonoma going on, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. There's honorable vessels in your house that you put out when people come over for dinner, and they're mostly clean, and then there's dishonorable vessels, you know, that have like wax rings and uh, broken garbage bags, stuff like that. Okay. If you don't know what a wax ring is, you don't own a home. Okay, um, that's the thing underneath the toilet. It's disgusting. Anyway, if anyone, look at this, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, from being dishonorable, it says he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, and look at this, this is not, this is not our goal, and useful for the master. Prepared for what? Every good work. Useful faith. Useful. Useful to God. I want to be useful to you. That's what God wants for us. And we know James, this has kind of been like a topic he's focused on a lot. In chapter one, he talks about a kind of religion that's useless. It's of no benefit. It's no profit. And he gives an, an example here of useless religion, faith without works. That doesn't do anything. It's not useful to others. And it's this sort of attitude that comes across needs. And usually it's funny because like it's even a person that's like saying, God, use me. And then you come across a need, and instead of meeting it, come across someone who needs food and clothing. You instead just give them some sort of spiritual sentiment. So that's what we have here. We have somebody who's in a situation that God, can, God wants to use them to bring compassion to meet a need. But um, instead of meeting the need with compassion, they just say words of compassion, right? Which is unhelpful. It's unuseful. If someone's drowning, you're like, Swim. Be saved. Like, think about the insincerity. and Think about just the, um, just the spirit of that, like how unhelpful that is. And what's interesting, too, is the two specific needs he's talking about here. What is he talking about? Food and clothing. Who's he, you think, getting that from? His big brother? Jesus in Matthew 6, who said, your heavenly father, he clothes the flowers of the field. He feeds the birds of the air. Food and clothing are two specific things that Jesus uh, makes sure to, to, to encourage his people that God is going to care for you. He's going to meet your needs. You don't have to worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. God is, if he clothes the flower, if he feeds the birds, are you not of more value than that? He's going to take care of you. He's going to clothe you. And so that's kind of the picture here. It's a, it's a fed, clothed person. Someone who's been fed by God and clothed by God and cared for by God. And how can someone who's been so cared for by God not care for others? How can we do that? Have we really experienced God's care then? Do we really know that my food and my clothing doesn't come because I'm a hard worker, but because God's been good to me? And if I really knew that, don't you think that will start to translate in how I treat people? It will. I won't walk past the person and give them, you know, religious sentiments, which I'm guilty of this. I do this. I do this. I justify all the time um, why I'm not doing the hard thing and helping someone in the name of spiritual talk. 
I'll pray for you. And really the problem is, God, I haven't been impacted enough by your love and grace that I show it to others. And so I find myself here, and what I'm starting to notice is, is like, you ever have to, like, call yourself out before? You ever done that? We're like, mm, you're copping out. You're copping out. It's, isn't it good that God didn't cop out on me? Isn't it so good that God saw me in need and he met my need? So when I find myself, and, and here's, again, here's the idea. God wants to use me. This is not like twist your arm, okay, God, I'll help people. Like, like, no, that's a dead work. This is someone who said, God, you have so impacted my life, and this is real faith. I want to be used by you. I want to be useful to the master. God, use my life. Now, here's what's interesting. What does that mean to you? God, use me. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Is it, is it the stage? Is it a platform? Is it your name in lights? Is it renown? No. No, no, that's, that's not what it means to be. We tend to look at that and go, oh, more significant is more significant. Bigger, better. More, more. We tend to do that. God doesn't do that. You see, God's into the details, man. He's into the little things. The people that God uses are usually people that no one sees. Useful. Now, so here's a way that I thought about this. Like, it's amazing how often we can pray for God to use us. And then when God says, okay, here's a need. We go, oh, bless you, brother, in Jesus' name. God bless you. May the Lord be with you. May you find clothing. Not for me, but from somewhere else. May you be, it's amazing how when the need presents itself, here's the question. Are we making ourselves useful? Make yourself useful. I mean, not in like a, a, a negative way, but God, if you want God to use your life, it's amazing. Listen, it's amazing how God can use people who make themselves available to him. He'll do this. And when you're faithful with little, he starts to give you more. And so you go, okay, God, just make me useful. And God starts to use you to meet these different needs, and this is his vision for faith. Faithfulness. Now, Titus tells us this about this kind of heartbeat. He said that this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God, here's kind of the command from Scripture, we should be, I love this, careful to maintain good works. Why? Because these things are good and profitable to man. See, God wants to use our lives. It's amazing that he would, but he wants to use our lives to meet needs, to be a prophet to others, to bring good to others. But for us, that's going to require us Ridding ourselves of our excuses, emptying ourselves of insincere spiritual talk, and being available to God. I'm not saying that you need to solve world hunger. You can't. Jesus didn't meet every need that was before him. We know this, right? When he went to the pool of Bethesda, all these people that could have been healed, he healed one. The question is, are you in step with the Spirit? Or is it your flesh that's determining how careful you are to help others? we got to die to self, man. we got to be walking with God. That's what Jesus said, man. My food on earth, the thing that I eat, it's to do the will of him who sent me. And he's got some specific things for me to do. I can't do everything. i got to stop trying to do everything, but I can do some things. I can do the things that God has called me to do. So the heartbeat here is to be careful to maintain good works. I love that. Be careful. Like, like care. Be full of care. Be careful. But focus. Be attentive. 
man, let, 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 let's think about our lives that way. Let's, let's go to work tomorrow morning. Let's leave this place. And our mindset is, okay, God, you have good works for me. I want to be mindful of that. I want to be useful to you. Amen? And then lastly, lastly, but certainly not leastly, isn't a word, but it's still the same point. We see James tell us that works, they exhibit a truthful faith. Works express a fruitful faith. God doesn't want us to be people of dead faith. And he's so good that he's made us alive and he's got good things for us to do. He wants us to be fruitful in every good work. God doesn't want us to have a useless faith. He, he wants us to be obedient. He wants us to, to, to find those needs and meet them. We extend those works and we become useful to our master. But let's be honest that God is most certainly concerned with us having a, a truthful faith, an honest faith, a real faith. And that's what James is really calling out here, isn't he? Again, he's not pitting faith and works against each other. He's actually helping us understand what true faith is. What does faith actually look like? James is going on to say, faith that doesn't manifest in action, faith that doesn't have works, it isn't true. It isn't faith at all. Come on, we, we say this. We say talk is cheap. We say this all the time. Like, you know the people in your life and what's true about them because you do life with them. You know what they believe and what they don't believe. You know what they care about and what they don't care about. What you really believe really, really finds its weight in how you live. In so many facets, like, here's one. What I believe about my hope in the future will totally dictate my current standpoint in the present. Like, what do I really believe about heaven? What do I really believe about eternal life? What do I really believe about the fact that Jesus has one and he's going to overcome all things in the end? That hope, it has to affect my heart right now. It can't be a concept. That's what James is saying. For it to be true, for you to really Believe something, it's going to be seen. And so he says that. Notice his words. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works, verse 18. What a great concept. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Um, we certainly, we certainly need to put our whole, our whole hearts into this because we're part of a culture and a generation right now that's tired of hearing it. They need to hear. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But who cares if we say it, but we don't show it? Who cares if we can act like we believe it? God is looking for people who will do what they say they believe. Who will, here's, here's the key, who will really believe it. Jesus said, when I come back, he said this in Luke 18, he says, will I really find faith? I really find faith? Jesus were to come back and here was my faith, nowhere to hide. What would he find? Concepts, ideas, or would there be something substantial? Substantial. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. And he sort of calls this out a little bit more. And he says this, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Now, this is a a doctrinal declaration, a Jewish declaration about the oneness of God, the akkad. Of God. He's referring here, he's writing to Jewish believers, he's referring to the Shema. Shema, Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Akkad. A little Hebrew for you, okay? Took me a long time to memorize that. Um, <laughs> Pamos. Um, but the idea here is talking about the essence of God. And he's going, okay, you believe that. In other words, you acknowledge that. You go, God is 
one in his essence. That's actually the language there. Not that there's one God instead of like polytheism, but the idea here is that there, that there is one God who is one. He's one in his essence. He's three persons, distinct in his persons, one in his nature, one in his essence. He goes, you, you believe that? He's like, yeah, I, I believe that. Why do you believe that? Oh, because people told me that. I believe it. Why? Because I went to VBS as a kid, grew up in the church, and so I've been told. Well, how do you know? Well, because people told me. Well, you believe that. You believe that. But um, do you really believe that? He would say. What evidence in your life is there that you believe that? He said this. It's good. Do you believe that? He goes, you know who else believes that? The demons. You know, you know um, Satan, our spiritual enemies, they are prominent theologians. They are theologically tight, man, skilled. They know, they know God is one. They, know, they, they, under, they probably understand the mystery of the Trinity way more than we do. The work of the cross, they, they, they scowl at it. But they know it. You think knowing something that you've been taught about God is actually saving faith? No, why? Because that's not faith. I was talking to someone about this recently. Like, I think some of the best things that, that Christians who have been raised in the church to, can do is ask questions. No, don't ask questions. No, we just have answers here. No questions. Just trust the answer. If you've never asked a question, you've never really believed an answer. You've been told an answer. You believe there is one God. Do you really believe it? I love how, you know what he even does? Not only does he say that the demonic realm, that they're theological, but he even says they're kind of actually better off than you. He says they believe this, and one, one, one commentator says, and at least they tremble. They tremble. Wow, it's like, do I tremble? They believe it, and they actually respond to it. But the way that they respond to it is not the kind of faith that saves. It's not the kind of faith that we're called to. We're not called to acknowledgments as Christians. Acknowledging truths about God will not secure you for eternity. And he explains this, and he uses this illustration, talking specifically about saving faith. He, he kind of puts some, some fire to our faith here. He's testing it. Our faith needs to be tested in order to be proven. Amen? The best thing you could do is to do what Paul said. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. We need more self-examination. So, many, so much of church today is so outward-focused, man. Are they saved? Are they saved? Are, they, are you saved? Let judgment begin in the house of God. Look inwardly, evaluate your own life, and evaluate your faith and go, is it faith? Now, he uses this concept, and he uses kind of the poster child of this concept, which is Abraham. Kim, I just called Abraham a poster child, but he is. Um, and the topic that he's talking about here when it comes to our faith is he's talking about faith that is the means through which I am saved from my sin and made right with God. The theology word that he uses there is what? Justification. I gave you the first three syllables. Come on, all right? Justif Justice League. No, no. Justification. It's a legal term. The word justification, it's what every, every one of us is longing for justification. And every one of us one day will stand before God and we will either be justified or we will be in our sin. Justified. Justification. It's to be made right before God and with God. Declared 
righteous. And there's some central truth here that gives life to the Christian faith. Um, and it's this truth about how we are made righteous. And here, James is going, it's, it's not a coincidence he's using Abraham. This was the guy that everyone would use to talk about, how do I get right with God? And he quotes from Genesis 15. When Abraham was declared righteous, he was made right with God solely because of his faith. That's all he did. He believed on God. Um, this is called, in the world of theology, right, this is called sola fide. One day we'll actually talk about what solace means. But you have the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. You have this idea of, of a sola scriptura, that how we define salvation, what it means to be saved, is not based on human opinion or the Pope's opinion or a pastor's opinion or the church's opinion. It's the word of God that tells me how to be saved. It's sola scriptura. And then it's sola gratia. Gratia, it means it's of grace. It's of grace. No one is saved by their earning or deserving. They're saved by God's goodness and love. And that grace, it's extended to us through sola fide. Faith alone. Only faith. This is what made Martin Luther so revolutionary and such a protester and such a reformer is he said, there's nothing that I contribute. John Edwards said this. There's nothing that I contribute to my salvation except for the sin that makes it necessary. That's my contribution. And that's all you need, by the way. You know what you, know what you need to be saved? Need. You need it, and you, go, and you look to God for it, and you trust in it, and you are, here's what the, the scriptures say, you are declared righteous through faith, through trusting, through trusting. The, these followers of Jesus came to him and said, Jesus, we want to work the works of God. What kind of works do we got to do to be right with you? He goes, here's the work, singular. Believe on him whom God has sent. It's a work. And through faith, here's what the scripture tells us, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, here's quoting from Genesis, his faith is accounted for righteousness, okay? Like debited to your account, not because you did something good, but because you were ungodly, yet you trusted in Jesus. And you trusted in what Christ has done. You, you trusted in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to be the works that make you right before God and not your own. When you stand before God one day, what are you banking on? Are you banking on your own works? No, no man will be justified according to the law. But those, those who don't work and they believe on him who justify the ungodly, their faith will be accounted for righteousness. And then Romans 5.1 tells us the same thing, that we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, incredible foundation. This is how we are saved, not by our own works of righteousness, but because of the works of Jesus. We trust in the finished work of Christ. James, what are you doing? James, what did James, stop it. We just read in Romans that we are justified by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, based on scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And then James comes on the scene and says, was not Abraham our father justified, verse 21, by works? Notice this, though. When, key word there is when, he offered his son Isaac on the altar. 
When did that happen? A couple decades after his profession of faith. Remember what Abraham's faith was in the first place? God said, Abraham... I'm going to make you more fruitful through your seed. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. See the stars? That doesn't compare to what I'm going to do through your lineage. And Abraham goes, God, that's a great promise, but you know we old. What are you saying? We can't do that. But Abraham, the Bible says that he didn't reason with God. We know that Abraham went on to struggle with faith like we all do, and he at one point tried to take matters into his own hands and said, Honey, I got a better idea, and it was not a good idea. But at, at, at the moment where God made this promise to Abraham, what God was promising Abraham was this, the same thing as salvation. What's impossible with you is possible with God if you trust him. It's impossible for you to save you. It's impossible on a human plane. It's as impossible as a 95-year-old woman getting pregnant. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. Do you trust him? And that trust that Abraham, it, it, it was righteous. Now, check this out. Decades later, after ups and downs of faith, welcome to the club. Abraham's the poster child. Okay. After those ups and downs, God says, Abraham, I want, you to, I want you to bring your son Isaac. I want you to go up on top of this mountain. I believe it was Moriah. And I want you to prepare an offering. Moses got there and God told him, your son's going to be the offering. And Isaac gets there and goes, Dad, it's a great, great altar. What's going to go on it? And in that moment, the Lord provided a lamb, a savior, to be the sacrifice. And Abraham said, God, why did I ever doubt you, right? See, that was Abraham's faith in action. Because, listen, Isaac, well, that's my answer to prayer. You know what I mean? It's like if God said, hey, your business, I'm gonna, you're going to start a business, and it's through your business that we're going to send, the missionaries are going to go to the nations. I'm just making this up, but okay. And then your, your business starts. <gasps> it's happening. And then God's like, I'm closing your business. What? No, but I, but I trusted you, and God proved himself faithful. And so what we see here with Abraham, we see this idea that it wasn't that his faith wasn't enough to save him, to make him righteous. It's that at the end of the day, how you live accordingly is going to bring evidence to what you really believe. Some people call this the perseverance of the saints. Like if you really are saved, like it'll show not when you make the profession, but on your deathbed. It's, it's this idea that I, I believe the gospel enough to give my own life for it. It's a, it's a Christianity that says that Christianity is not just about the death and the crucifixion of Christ. It's about the death and the crucifixion of self. It's me, and I, and I live that way. I live accordingly. He's justified by faith. You can think of it this way. His faith is what justifies him, but it's like his works that justify his faith. Oh, yeah, it's faith. It's faith. It's true faith. Here's the way Martin Luther said it. He said that we are saved by faith alone. I love this. But the faith that saves is never alone. Right? How are we saved? Sola fide. Sola gratia. Based on sola scriptura. Solus Christus. Through Jesus alone. It's, it's through faith 
alone. But faith that saves, it's never going to be alone. It's going to manifest itself in good works. It's the evidence of faith, and it's through the test of time. Ladies, come on, this is a great principle. There's something about just give him some time. See who he is. See what he's really, anybody can make a profession about how much they love you and how godly they are, you know? And then 10 years later in marriage, Brittany's like, hmm, what? Wow, I didn't see that coming. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But it's the test of time that's the best test of truth. Amen? Faith and works. Not enemies competing against each other, but best friends working together to produce within us a fruitful faith, a useful faith, and a truthful faith. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.